Good morning. Today's scripture is from Acts 9, verses 32 to 43. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which, when translated, is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Thanks, Ron. Well, last night I was at the hockey game. My, my, the other worship event in Calgary this week. Uh, my, my second ever NHL game. And uh, I got to witness some history, as some of you will know. Before the game, Ole Jokinen was honored for having reached his milestone of 1,000 NHL games. In the third period, Lance Bauma scored his first ever NHL goal, and of course, Jerome McGinless scored, albeit somewhat accidentally, I think, his 500th career goal. So not a bad game for me to attend after 10 years of never seeing an NHL game. Um, I went to the game because a friend of mine from 25 years ago, and whom I haven't even spoken to for over 10 years, called me this week and said, I have tickets, I want to go, do you want to go with me? And I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. I first met him in 1987, and he was an important player in what turned out to be a very formative time in my life in terms of faith and movement towards ministry and so on. And over time, our paths kind of diverged and we lost touch. But about a year ago, I got an email from his wife, and that led to me tracking in subsequent weeks with some of the events that were going on in his own life. After a period of severe pain in his mouth, more than a year ago, he was diagnosed with cancer on his tongue. He underwent successful surgery and then radiation treatments, but his recovery since then has been very long, very gradual, and is not over yet. Uh, For half a year, he could not eat anything that was not pureed, 
And you can imagine what that might be like. Speech was virtually impossible for him and still is very significantly affected. And so it was good for me to connect with him last night after a long time. Over the years that I have known him, uh, he has been a pastor. He has been a full-time ministry worker. He has been in leadership in the church that he's been a part of. That's one story. Uh, in the last two weeks also, I have heard about the events in the life of one of my seminary professor's wife. Earlier last year, spring 2011, she had to go to the hospital and unexpectedly ended up staying there for a number of months. And for a, long, for a time at least, she was very much on the brink of death. And nobody knew, the hospital staff did not know if she was going to make it. And the fact that she's alive at all today is considered by those who know her and even by the hospital staff in Edmonton is considered a miracle. And they, they use that word, miracle. We live in a broken world, as we know, where physical suffering is not uncommon. And we, of course, at Thornhill Church in recent times have become very aware of that again lately. Um, I have in my own life, as most of you will know, Last uh, Yesterday afternoon, uh, Chris and Doris, thank you to them, picked me up and we went to the Rocky View Hospital where K.P. Schwartz has been for uh, a week and a half or so. And, and he's, not, he's not doing great. He's not doing great. We're not sure what his future will look like, but he's not doing particularly well. And, uh, and it was good for us just to be in the room with him and his kids uh, to pray. They were singing. It was wonderful. George Rath, most of you will know him, went in the hospital a week or so before Christmas. And there too, not sure what his future is going to look like. We do not know how long he will be in the hospital. And incidentally, he says hi to all of you. Uh, thanks for your prayers. Would love visits. So you are free to go. And basically, he's inviting you to come and see him. He's, he loves visits. And I said that I would pass that on for him. Uh, Klaus Peter, George Rath, just to name a couple, we know that there are many situations in our church where there are people who are going through some form of physical or even other challenge and struggle. And we as, as a body, as a family, as a congregation want to support each other and to pray for each other. And part of that, of course, is to pray for the sick. Now, here's uh, not exactly a rabbit trail, but I want to point your attention for a moment to this green, if it's green, slip in the bulletin. It's an invitation, and I won't, I won't read it to you now, but it's an invitation from the deacons to you, the congregation, to join us in uh, a week, but really five days, of prayer and fasting for the sick of our congregation. We, we spent a week in prayer and fasting I don't know, again, about a year ago, I think, um, trying just to seek the face of God, trying to, to increase the tenderness of our hearts toward God. And at that time, it was suggested that maybe we should do it again, and this time maybe pray and fast for the sick. And, and we, didn't, we didn't do it at that time, but that idea has come up again, and the deacons thought, you know, we really, we really want to do that. Um, we don't understand prayer, quite frankly. We don't understand fasting. 
But there seems to be something about fasting that adds a dynamic to prayer, again, that we don't understand. But we want to we give our prayer energy to, together, praying for the sick uh, in our church. So I want, at your convenience, but maybe not right now, to read this, and you'll be getting a little bit more information as the time comes close, but it will be the last few days of January and the first couple of days in February. Uh, and so I mention that now in order to ask these kinds of questions. How do we pray with confidence for the sick? Can God heal the sick? Or are miraculous healings a thing of the first, but not the 21st century? Of course, God can heal today, but we wonder, will he? Does he want to in any given situation? We know that he doesn't always heal. So how do we pray with faith and yet without presuming on God? We know that God hears and answers prayer, but we don't want to fall into the theological trap of assuming that God always heals. So how do we balance a confident and trusting faith with the proviso of God's will be done? And when we have a week of fasting and prayer, what will it look like for us to support each other in prayer? What will it look like for us to pray and to see God's kingdom come? And again, to pray without presumption, but with confidence. Well, our passage today from the book of Acts, I think, helps us with some of those questions. We're back in Acts today. Um, having, since chapter 6, followed the stories of Stephen and then Philip and then Saul... The writer of Acts, Luke, now brings us back to Peter. Peter, we find, is visiting the saints, the followers of Jesus, in the towns of Judea. And he comes to the town of Lydda. And then later on to the town of Joppa. And in these two places, Lydda and Joppa, miracles are performed. Miracles that parallel, by the way, very closely to the miracles that Jesus himself had performed. Peter comes to Lydda, about 30 miles outside of Jerusalem. Maybe he's on some kind of church leadership tour, bringing encouragement. Maybe he's preaching, don't know. But in his interactions with the believers in Lydda, he meets a man named Aeneas. And this is Aeneas' only appearance in the scripture. And so we don't know anything about him, really. Was he young? Was he old? Was he married? Was he unmarried? We only know two things about him. One, that he was a follower of Jesus, because he's counted among the believers, the saints. And secondly, that he is a paralytic and has been bedridden for eight years. Eight years is a long time. What were you doing eight years ago? January 2004. What if you had been paralyzed and bedridden from that point until now. Okay, so for some of you, that takes you back to before retirement. Uh, for some of you, that's before we had kids. For students, you were probably in junior high back then. Imagine what if for those eight years, you could not leave your bed for the simple reason that you couldn't move. And Aeneas, remember, was a saint. He was a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus. Now, when I read Bible stories to my kids from our so-called children's Bibles, 
I'm realizing how easy it is to teach our kids badly. And parents, you might know some of these kinds of things. The story of Noah and the flood. We read the story and say, see kids, God keeps us safe. Which is nonsense. The story of Noah and the ark is a story of God's judgment on sin and his grace in saving some. It's a story of the holiness of God and the pervasiveness of sin in the human heart. It's not about God keeping us safe. And so when your kids ask you about all of the people who died, you need to think about what you'll tell them. God does not keep us safe. Christians suffer. Christians have car accidents. Christians get cancer and other things. Christians die young. And in fact, the Bible explicitly says that we'll be persecuted because we're Christians for being followers of Jesus. The Bible tells us that God permits suffering in order to form our character, to refine our faith, or that we'll, we'll find ourselves in a better position to be able to serve others in the name of Jesus. God promises that even our suffering, he will redeem for our good, but he never says we won't suffer. He actually says outright, you will suffer. And as we teach our kids that God keeps us safe, um, are we surprised then, are we dismayed when a death or an illness or some tragedy leads to a crisis of faith? Well, of course it's going to, because we've taught them that those things aren't going to happen. And we might read this story in Acts about the healing of Aeneas and say, see, God healed Aeneas. But first, Aeneas suffered for eight years. And did he ever wonder about God? Did he ever wonder why God let this happen to him? And then one day Peter comes and says to him, very simply, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. The first time in eight years he's out of bed, he rises, he walks. Jesus twice had done a similar thing. Mark 2 and John chapter 5 commanded a paralyzed man to take up his bed or his mat. And by, by them taking up their bed, taking up their mat, the physical healing that had just happened was further demonstrated. The wholeness and the dexterity of their whole bodies, not just their legs. It showed their ability to care for themselves for the first time. And the healing of Aeneas would have been a very, very cool thing to be a witness to. It wasn't, it wasn't just man can't walk and then man can walk. No, he would have seen a physical transformation. Muscles that had atrophied would have been filled out and made strong. Legs filled out and made strong. Cells created. Muscle mass built. In an instant before the eyes of those who saw it. I mean, what, an, what a remarkable thing to see. And so no wonder that when people saw him paralyzed and bedridden for eight years, no wonder they, they saw him and turned to the Lord, to Jesus in whose name this healing had been done. Peter didn't heal Aeneas, and he's pretty clear about it. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, he said. This is what John Calvin wrote about this text. In these words, Peter shows plainly that he is only a minister of the miracle 
and that it proceeds from the power of Christ, so that he may by this means extol the name of Christ alone. So news of this miracle in Lydda, the healing of Aeneas, reaches Joppa several more miles to the north, and there a woman named Tabitha has died. Tabitha also was a disciple, a follower of Christ, and she was, the scripture tells us, full of good works and acts of charity. Her good works and her acts of charity included the making of tunics and robes for the widows. The scripture in a number of places, by the way, ranks care for widows as one of the things dearest to God's heart. So Tabitha was doing some of God's favorite things. In fact, she was full of good works. And even she got sick and died. Sometimes bad things happen to us and we assume that God must be displeased with us or is punishing us. I thought I was doing right and serving God well, but I guess I was wrong. Well, the story of Tabitha ought to put that to rest for us. The Bible explicitly says that she was full of good works, and yet still she got ill for a time and then died. And it's, it's our bad theology often that makes us think that we've made a deal with God. We do good for God. God does good for us. No illness. No crises, no significant hardship. That's bad theology, and it's frankly, it's rampant in churches today. It's an unbiblical understanding of God, and it leads to confusion and crisis and doubt when a setback does then happen. Again, God promises to redeem our suffering. God promises to take it and turn it into our good and a uh, a forum to showcase his goodness, his power. And in fact, for the Christian, when we do stop clinging to our suffering and come to entrust ourselves to God, then suffering does become an occasion to testify to God's greatness and glory in a way that the absence of suffering never could. And that's what happened in the life of Aeneas and now in Tabitha. And I love this story. In keeping with their custom, after Tabitha died, they bathed her, washed her, and laid her in a separate room. And because they knew that Peter was in nearby Lydda, the believers quickly sent a two-man delegation there to get Peter and to plead with him to come as quickly back with them as he could to Joppa. Now, why did they do that? What were they hoping for? She was dead. Did they hope that Peter might bring her back to life? Don't know. They probably knew Peter's reputation from, for example, Acts chapter 5, where everyone brought their sick and demon-possessed into the streets, and if Peter's shadow touched them as he walked by, they were restored. Were they hoping for an even greater miracle than that for Tabitha? What was Peter expecting? I don't know that either. But he went with them. Even if he did not already know that God would raise her, his visit to Joppa would have been a pastoral care visit, you know, visiting the community of Christians in their time of very real grief. So when Peter comes to Joppa, they take him immediately up to the room where they've laid Tabitha's corpse. 
And immediately he's surrounded by these widows who weep and wail and show Peter all this stuff. Look, Tabitha made this robe for me. See this cloak? She made it herself because she knew that I didn't have the resources to buy it. And Tabitha did this and Tabitha did that. Tabitha's faith had fruit. And there were things that people could point to and say, Here is the hard evidence of the reality of Jesus in Tabitha's life. Now, don't be morbid, but think of your funeral. Friends and family will come. What will they point to as evidence of the reality of Jesus in your life? The Bible says a lot about fruit. Fruit is simply the the natural and visible tangible evidence of faith. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, and so on. Good works, generosity, a new way of living. The coming, the coming to faith and the subsequent growth of people in our lives. We come to faith and we find the people around us coming to faith and growing. That's fruit. So what are the kinds of things that people will point to and say, here is the evidence of this woman's faith, of this man's faith? And I don't know how much Peter was struck by their testimony of Tabitha. Maybe not very much. Because Peter would have just thought it normal. What Tabitha did was exactly the kind of thing that Peter would have expected from a follower of Christ. So Peter eventually clears the room, sends everyone out, and he kneels to pray. Um, Maybe he needed to pray and to listen to God, and that's pretty hard to do in a room full of wailing women. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. Maybe he knew, had a sense of what was about to happen, and didn't want there to be witnesses to it so that there wouldn't be undue attention on himself. I don't know. But in any event, when the room is empty, he kneels down, And he prays. And again, we have no idea how long he prays, what he said. But at some point then, he simply turns to the dead woman and says to her, Tabitha, get up. That's it. It's pretty simple. No waving of hands. No loud, aggressive banishing of the demon of death. No sense of battle or drama. But when Peter has, in prayer, become confident in what God is going to do, all he has to do is then speak it. Just a simple Tabitha, get up. Uh, A few years ago, one of our life groups, some of you will remember this, worked through this study called Experiencing God. And the basic premise of this study is that God is not aloof or abstract or distant, but is present and active all around us and in us and in our lives. And the pressing priority for us as Christians and for the church is simply to know God well enough to become familiar enough with what he is doing and how he is doing it that we can discern his activity and participate in it. That is, it's not so much a matter of asking him to do certain things or to bless with success the things that we are doing so that God's agenda aligns with ours but more to understand what he is doing and align our our agenda with his. 
And the chief means by which we become familiar not just with God's ways, but with God himself, are prayer and scripture. So if we've ever wondered why don't we see these kinds of miracles happen as much in our day, I wonder if it's, it's not because God doesn't want to do them or just isn't doing them. I wonder if it's because there's so few churches and Christians who in our day walk closely enough with God to recognize what he's doing at any given moment. And Peter's life, I think, is such an encouragement for us in this regard. And I've said this before in an earlier message from Acts as well. When Peter saw Aeneas, he could quickly and confidently say, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. How, how did Peter know that? Did God just speak more bluntly and obviously to Peter? Or, as some have suggested, was it because God just was doing more miracles through the apostles, but he faded those miracles out over time? Or could it be that Peter was familiar enough with God that he just recognized God's whisper, Peter, I'm healing this man today. And with Tabitha, it's in the context of Peter praying, this kind of closing out the distractions, tuning into God, that Peter then knew that God was going to raise her. And knowing that, it just became a simple matter of speaking it. Peter didn't raise her, but nor did he wrestle with God in order to get God to raise her. There's no storming the gates of heaven here. And by the way, I hate that phrase. God is not the enemy. We do not need to go on the attack against the gates of heaven. Peter just prayed and then in confidence said, Tabitha, get up. And how different is that from so many of our experiences today? Right? We, we all know. How little do Christians spend time with God? How unfamiliar with God we have become? And then when there's an illness or a crisis, and then we're driven to prayer, we're, we're kind of caught, taken aback, and we don't know what to pray for. We don't know what God wants to do. And so we expend our prayer energy trying to get God on board with our concern. And we pray, if it's your will, and we hope it's his will, but we don't know if it's his will or not. And I often pray, having resigned myself before the fact that it probably isn't his will, but I can at least ask. And how much more powerful and encouraging our prayer would be if we knew God well enough to be able to pray confidently in one case, Lord, we know that you're going to heal this person, and that person is made well. Right? What, what kind of faith building happens when we say to someone, Jesus heals you, get up, and they get up? But how faith building also it would be to know when God will not heal so that discouragement then doesn't erode our faith, but instead to be able to pray, Lord, we know that what you're doing in this case is drawing our church together. So we pray for that. Or we know that what you're up, what you're up to here is reconciling this family dynamic. Or we know that what we know that you're at work in somebody else's life, and somehow their presence at this funeral right now is part of what you're doing. 
Or we know that you're bringing out the salvation of somebody who's sharing a hospital room with so-and-so. Or you're teaching humility and trust. I mean, when it comes to crisis and illness and hardship in our lives, God might be doing any one of a hundred things. And to glorify himself by an obvious public healing may or may not be one of those things. And if we knew God well enough to be able to discern, we could pray with tremendous confidence and power and then simply speak God's intention as Peter did and see the, the kingdom of God come. Romans 12 says that as we offer ourselves to God fully and as we are subsequently renewed by the transforming of our minds, that is, in coming to God, we learn to see things differently, not just according to the pattern of how the world sees things. Then we know what God's perfect will is. Peter saw God's work. Tabitha, get up. And her eyes open. And he helps her up, and I love that detail. Um, we saw it before in Acts chapter 3. Do you remember when the, the paralyzed man was healed? Jesus Christ heals you, and Peter took him by the hand and helped him up. After speaking God's intent, Peter extends a hand to help bring it about. And I, I think there's something for me to learn here. I think there's something for us all to learn here. God wants to restore your marriage. Now, let me help you by talking and praying with you as a couple. God wants to reveal himself to you more. Now, let us help you deal with this unforgiveness that you're harboring. God saves you and brings you to Jesus. Now, let me help you grow by looking at the scripture together with you regularly. Get up. But here, I'll help you up. And this miracle, again, parallels a miracle of Jesus. You remember the daughter of the synagogue ruler? Jesus goes into a house full of wailing people, sends them out, and then says to the girl, little girl, get up. Peter leads Tabitha out of the room, presents her to the people, and can hardly imagine their amazement and their joy. And of course, as the whole town hears about what's happened, many people believe in the Lord. It is not an accident that in the story of paralyzed Aeneas being healed by Jesus and raised up, and in the story in Joppa of Tabitha being raised from death to life, that in both of those stories, the author of Luke says, many people in that place turn to the Lord because of it. When God does a certain work or does not do a certain work, when God chooses to heal and reveals to us that he's going to heal, or when he doesn't and is up to something different, we can be very sure that the primary agenda for God is the glory of Jesus Christ in the eyes of the people who are a part of the event. And at the end of this month, we are asking us to fast and to pray. And to pray for those who are sick. And we know who they are and our hearts go out to them and we feel for them. And it is right for us to, to um, 
to have them and their well-being in our minds. But we pray best and most effectively when we learn to understand not only, or not just God's will for that person, but how it is that God wants to glorify his son, Jesus Christ, in this situation. And when we pray with the glory of Jesus in mind, in the life of George, KP, others, I think that we will see God move. And move powerfully and profoundly. just looking at the clock and I do not want to go much longer because we do want to pray this morning and we want to remember and honor the death of Christ who died in order that we might actually get close enough to God to hear him and sense what he is doing. So I'm going to just kind of stop the sermon short at this point and close it simply by saying this. In our life together as a church, as we learn to care for one another and to pray for one another, can we seek by the help of God's Spirit to intentionally learn to listen for the voice of God and to discern what it is that he wants to do and then speak it and pray it into reality. You're going to be hearing some more about this in the next little while. I'm going to lead us now in a time of prayer, and then we will celebrate, remember the death of Christ. Remembering Christine's requests, I want to pray for that. I do want to pray for George and for Klaus Peter and Anna Marie and for their family as well. As I'm praying, other things will come to your mind. You go ahead and you quietly in your heart bring those things to God. He can listen to more than one prayer at a time. Let's pray. Lord God, we have based our hope for eternity and the afterlife on the reality of Jesus and his death and new life. And we remind ourselves this morning that our hope for this life, even as we sung it earlier, our hope for this life is in Christ alone. We seek his glory. We know that we belong to him. We know that you desire our good, and we can trust you with that. But we know that we need help often in desiring your glory above all else and surrendering our needs, our crises, our issues and concerns, surrendering those under the umbrella of your glory. But it's in that context that we pray today. We pray just first of all for Christine and her parents. 
We pray not just for her parents, but maybe first of all for Christine and any other believers who are in uh, her parents' circles, for, for them to discern and, and get a sense from you about not only what, but how you want to do in her parents' lives, and to pray along those lines. If there's certain steps that need to be taken, if there's a certain process that you need to move them through, help Christine and others to know what that is so that they can pray. But then we do also pray that they will find fullness of life in Christ. The forgiveness of sins and the reality of joy and hope for eternity. And I pray for Christine just in her conversation this afternoon that you will not just give her the words but will empower those words to bear fruit. And that as her parents listen to her speak of you, of your son, that something in their hearts will begin to beat and say, there is truth here. Pray for her and for them. Pray for the ongoing work in Cameroon that the word of God will bear incredible fruit in the lives of the Baca people, that there will be many people who know who Jesus is, surrender their lives to him, and that their lives will be lives that that bear fruit and show evidence of discipleship, growth, deepening, changed character. Let there be revival and, and a sweeping move of God in Cameroon and among the Baca. Pray for Eve and Christine that they will discern your will with respect to their own lives and when they need to come back here sooner or later Give them either the ability to see what you're doing so that they can adjust their plans accordingly or even just the specific leading of come back in six months or come back in a year and a half. We don't know why, but just that's when we're coming back. But help them to know and to have peace about that. I pray for Klaus Peter whose life has borne fruit. He's a man of character. And as he is in the hospital now and just in a time that feels like like there's real uncertainty, I pray for him, for your perfect will in his life. And as we and as his family pray for him, again, the the repeated request that, that we'll know how to pray that will sense what it is you are doing. So teach us something about prayer even as we do that. May he have peace. May Anna Marie have peace. And for George, too, in the hospital probably for a fair amount of time. Again, we don't know much, but we do know from your word that that you are are doing this in his life for his good, that you want to conform his character to that of Christ, and that's what we pray for. That's what we pray for. And that Jesus will be glorified to and in George and through him to others also. 
And as we give ourselves to prayer in the next little while, by your grace, Lord, teach us to pray. Show us something about prayer. We know so little. Teach us to pray. And now as we conclude our service where we began, by fixing our sights on Jesus and the reality of his death in our place for our sins. Do a work in our hearts. Glorify him in these few moments to us. In his name. In his name we pray. Amen.